before we get underway, let me apologize for our podcast being a little late and slightly longer than we normally schedule. This was due to my recent second bout with the COVID-19 virus. I want to thank our listener supporters for reaching out and checking on my well-being. Thank you. We start with defining racist negation, the act of denying the existence of a non-white individual or group that does indeed exist. The process of racist negation causes a non-white person or group of people to cease to be real and relevant, to ultimately disappear. As a straightforward form of human denial, Racist negation is at the core of modern racist discourse. You know, the first rule of racist discourse is to vigorously declare that racism does not exist, to completely ignore it. Therefore, everything that follows from that reinforces and affirms the further erasure of non-white members of humanity. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with The Invention of Racism. The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. This podcast episode the racist negation of enslaved and free black women briefly examines the erasure of the black woman's body, highlighting the period of slavery and the case of Pauline Rabinac of New Orleans, Louisiana in 1845. With this in mind, the history of racist negation involving black women's bodies begins and ends with who tells our stories and how our stories are told. And when I think of the many ways black women navigate and narrate our existence, I reflect on the black women from the past who could not record their feelings and experiences, how, th how they are relegated to racist stereotypes and myths. How do we actually begin to understand, engage, appreciate, and privilege the undocumented and or unwritten accounts of our lives. So I keep going back to the life and death of Pauline Rebenach in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was early 1845 when Mr. Peter Rabinac, her legal owner, had left town for business travel to St. Louis, Missouri. Pauline immediately took his wife and children hostage. They were confined and beaten. Pauline restrained them in her slave quarters, which was in the back closet of the house. And it was widely known that Peter Rabinac had purchased Pauline, a quadroon, as his slave concubine, with the full knowledge of his wife and others. In addition, she was purchased to perform domestic duties and to take care of the children. Now this was a huge story in 1845 and 1846 
It was covered by the New Orleans Bee, the Daily Picayune, the Weekly Delta, and the Plaquemine Gazette. One account referred to Pauline contemptuously as Rabinac's slave mistress. When another enslaved African woman hired by Pauline saw the family in distress, she helped to alert the authorities about the confinement of Mrs. Rabinac, and Pauline was immediately arrested for striking her white mistress. These newspapers and other chroniclers described Pauline's behavior as revolting and atrocious, suggested that she had acted with fiendish barbarity like a demon in human shape, and all the while possessed a sulky, stubborn, and revengeful look. Pauline's concubine situation in the early American years was not unusual in Creole, Louisiana. And here, by Creole, you know I'm referring to a white person of European ancestry, usually of French and Spanish origin, who was born in the colonial territory. <coughs> Most scholars and students of antebellum history are familiar with the Southern rape complex in Louisiana and throughout the region impacting the lives of enslaved African women and girls. Because if rape was cited as a complaint involving black females at all, it was a crime against the white slave owner who was entitled to damages. And while some Southern areas focus on the forced breeding of enslaved black women, in slave society, black women were commonly deemed unrapeable. We also find incidences of enslaved women being relegated to brothels in the vice districts or fair-complexioned enslaved females who could pass for white being sold. Then there was the ornate sexual exploitation of free women of color, usually biracial females known as mulattoes, quadroons, and octoroons. These designations were routinely considered part of the long-standing caste system known as Jean de Couleur Libre, or free people of color. The young women in this caste were involved in informal liaisons with unmarried wealthy white males in New Orleans, Louisiana. So at this point, we should pause just for a moment to mention racial gender hierarchy and color gradient. In U.S. history, racial gender hierarchy is generally divided into four very broad categories. And so, though demographically crude, in terms of privilege, power, entitlement, and access in society, white males were at the top of the hierarchy, then white females, next black males, and last black females. The system of slavery in the U.S. was predicated on erasing the existence of African people in many ways, i.e. racist negation, and this was done to create the perfect exploitable labor force. In an oppressive paradigm that functioned on rigorous racial, gender, class, and social markers, black women were deemed to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, and this is why black women could be subjugated by the upper echelons of the racial hierarchy, including oppressed black men and white women, as well as by other black women. 
Now the terms mulatto, quadroon, and octoroon speak to color gradient. White supremacist ethos created a whole world that revolved around bloodline superiority and skin color. This world was predicated on identifying the amount of black blood a person had, and the idea that the closer a person was to whiteness, the more acceptable as human they were. However, ironically, a single drop of black blood was enough to condemn any person. And for those who may not know, a mulatto was a person who had one black parent and one white parent. A quadroon possessed one-fourth African blood and an octoroon had one-eighth African blood. The quadroon and octoroon typically had predominantly white ancestry. These pseudo-scientific designations, and there were many, many other configurations, were created to advance frameworks that supported theories of pure bloodlines. Pale or fair skin, coupled with Caucasian physical features, was often used to confirm any of these categories. In the 19th century, these color gradients, mulatto, quadroon, and octoroon, were bundled into the catch-all legal phrase, person of color, which is incidentally a term that remains in casual use today to attempt to capture everyone who is not white. Okay, so the sexual exploitation of free women of color in New Orleans, the mulattoes, quadroons, and octoroons involved the transactional practice of placage or placement. These females, notably those between the ages of 12 and 16, were said to have been meticulously reared by their overprotective mothers to ensure their chastity. This placage was preceded by parties introducing the girls and concluded with verbal contract-like negotiations that codified the concubinage connection between the female of color and the wealthy white male. Essentially, the white male gained exclusive sexual access to the young woman, received the house. The young woman, in turn, received a house, support for her family, upkeep, gifts, and the assurance that any children she had would be educated and provided for. These females were usually kept until the male legally married a white woman, severed the relationship, or died. The scholarly debate over the practice of placage is extensive. It includes the criticism that the focus is always on colorful cities like New Orleans rather than its origin in the French Caribbean. Then there is the idea that placage in New Orleans, Louisiana is a myth despite the documentary history. Also, that if placage was real, it was not as extensive as the literature suggests. Finally, some scholars who research placage seek to empower the biracial women involved, proposing that they use the intimate arrangement to build lives for themselves and their children in a world that essentially had no place for them. But as for Pauline, she was described as a tall quadroon. However, 
she was unfree and not associated with the New Orleans placage balls. From the earliest records, we know little to nothing about Pauline's life. We believe she was born in Virginia and had once been enslaved by founding father James Madison, the fourth president of the United States. She was probably in her late 20s, born about 1814, and eventually enslaved on a plantation in Natchitoches Parish. One of the overseers on that plantation was Peter Rabinac. He bought Pauline and took her south to New Orleans, where he had rented that half duplex house for himself and his family. And if the public record is correct, Peter Rabinac flaunted his relationship with Pauline, routinely questioned the mental health of his wife when she confronted him about it, and authorized Pauline to assert dominion over the running of the Rabinac household. Once Rabinac left on the extended trip to St. Louis, the two women clashed. There was, quote, much ill feeling between them, unquote. We don't have evidence that Pauline had a psychological break and attacked the mistress out of emotional distress. But after all, she was enslaved, so it was plausible. And we don't know if it was a deliberate act of resistance, yet enslaved Africans in Louisiana were well known for fighting against slavery in various ways. What is telling is that Pauline confined Mrs. Rabinac and her children to the small slave quarters in the back of the house where she had resided. And this was clearly a reversal of roles. She being free, along with the act of restraining and working and beating a white woman and her children made them enslaved. They had bruises and contusions and the whippings she gave caused bleeding. Mrs. Rabinac recovered and publicly testified against Pauline and in doing so, she became a kind of local heroine. Some people in the adjacent parish rented a new house for her, raised funds for her living expenses, and openly condemned her husband. To add to the spectacle, Pauline told the police that she was pregnant by Rabinac. It is not known definitively whether she thought this was true at the time or if she invented the condition in the hope that they would spare her life. But Pauline was swiftly sentenced to death. But the execution was stayed for a year on account of her purported condition of pregnancy. When they later discovered that she was not pregnant, Pauline was hung in 1846, exhibiting what was described as a perfect example of firmness and great moral courage, they said that Pauline died penitent and resigned. And up to 5,000 people witnessed the execution of Pauline. The crowd was described as, as a sea of, quote, serious and sorrowful faces, strangely contrasted with the boisterous and merry. 
Bedezened courtesans flaunted their charms in open carriages. Women of all descriptions were there on foot, young and old of all colors." Unquote. The execution was sensational and terrible. Because of a malfunction with the rope, instead of being hung, she died by strangulation for several minutes. Remember, Pauline was tried and sentenced under the Louisiana Black Codes for the crime of assaulting a white person, namely a slave owner or surrogate, such as a wife or children. But Pauline's life could have been spared. They had the option of sentencing her to imprisonment at hard labor for a term of not less than 10 years. They chose to take Pauline's life. Because of the established racial gender hierarchy and the adherence to color gradient, Pauline experienced a confluence of events designed to reinforce white supremacy and to remind society of the black woman's place. Pauline, who was legally chattel property, was held solely responsible for the intimate connection that took place with Rabinac. And this reminds me of the heated scholarly discussions over more than three decades concerning Thomas Jefferson and one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. Scholars determined to protect the public image of Jefferson as the third president of the United States and a founding father ensured that Hemings was depicted as a willing, if not assertive, concubine. But black studies scholars have effectively argued that no enslaved woman can consent to a sexual relationship with a slave owner or surrogate. Women of color did not have the social freedoms or the legal power to do so. Even so, Pauline was portrayed as a corrupting sexual influence on Rabinac, who, by the end of the trial, was essentially missing in action. He was characterized as morally bankrupt, weak-minded, and roguish. But holding enslaved black women as mistresses was not a myth. Placage in New Orleans, Louisiana was not a myth. The actual myth was about slave concubinage, that enslaved black women and free women of color were said to possess supernatural powers of seduction. This myth conveniently shifted power and control from white males and absolved them of their behavior. The myth also gave their Creole wives a reason to overlook the activities of their husbands, whom they could not openly confront or blame. Their loyalty to their husbands in this matter meant that they could liberally discharge their frustrations onto the bodies of free and unfree women of color. In the study of history and the racist negation of black women, as I said, everything begins and ends with who tells our stories and how our stories are told. Black women who could not record their experiences for posterity still had to traverse spaces that called for out for justice. We can begin to understand the undocumented and or unwritten accounts of our lives by observing and analyzing the known facts and engaging in counterfactual historical thinking.
So Pauline likely assumed that she had the power to behave like a slave owner because Rabinac had given her authority over the household and humiliated his own wife in the process. Pauline might have thought that Rabinac would defend her position and her actions against a wife he clearly loathed. Or Pauline acted as her own agent, completely self-empowered for her own reasons. And among white men, Rabinac had little support. When the evidence demonstrated that he set up, approved, and even funded the arrangement with Pauline, law enforcement only hoped that he would see justice, but nothing along the lines of imprisonment or capital punishment. The New Orleans community vilified Peter Rabinac as a scoundrel and his punishment was being shunned. We know that Pauline was tried and executed for beating Mrs. Rabinac. Such punishments were not unusual, and to be sure, these were brutal, if not barbaric, times. However, given there was a clause in the Black Codes that allowed for a sentencing alternative, why was Pauline put to death? Pauline was executed to serve as an example for enslaved blacks, especially black women, who retaliated against the white population. It was a reminder of her place in society that strict punishments would be upheld in order to maintain the system of slavery. Just like those who participated in armed slave revolts, Pauline was killed because she placed white families, the entire white community at risk. In addition, to the general concerns over organized slave rebellions, there were historic legal challenges to white family legacies and the intergenerational distribution of wealth and property. Women of color and their children fought many legal battles to claim inheritances from the estates of white men. White women were also considered sacrosanct but they were still the property of white males. Therefore, Pauline had violated two main areas of white supremacist domination, race and gender. A black woman behaving as if she possessed the power of a free white man. Pauline was executed so that a warning could be made about the issue of interracial concubinage. White males and black females in sexual associations this message was clear. Black women slave mistresses were also subject to capital punishment if they struck a white person. White males could be ostracized for failing to keep these relationships discreet, though this message didn't really apply to very powerful and wealthy white males. And as a former plantation overseer, Peter Rabinac was not a planter or a major slave owner. Finally, Pauline was a black female inside of a rigid racist hierarchy, so she wasn't viewed as fully human and worthy of compassion. As further demonstrated in the realm of white supremacy, authorities expressed concern 
over her person, her body, only when they thought she was pregnant and delayed the execution. As an enslaved woman, her child would be enslaved. Valuable property I added to the Rabinac household or sold to pay for her jail, execution, and even the disposal of her body. We can understand quite a bit about racism in the 19th century through the lives of enslaved and free black women. We know that the black female body was an important source of labor, wealth, and amusement. Regarding the quadroon balls, one chronicler of these gatherings said, quote, from the stories repeated sometimes by old gentlemen, it is safe to say that our great grandfathers had a good time, unquote. These balls were a form of entertainment and social control. And we know that even the earliest laws specified how black women could be seen physically in public, what they could and could not wear on their bodies so as to not offend white women and entice white men. We know that the free men and women of color, the Jean de Couleur Libre, were a distinct caste based on their distance from blackness and proximity to whiteness. However, mulatto, quadroon, and octoroon status did not guarantee freedom, opportunity, or privilege. Yet, we know that some black women, enslaved and free, found ways to construct even a fleeting sense of justice in a profoundly unjust world. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, and share, and support us. I also encourage you to use your platform to honestly analyze, examine, and put an end to racism. If you are listening to this podcast, and I know you are, thank you so much, then you already know, discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.